Section 26 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10, The Evidence from Development, Continued. 2. The Life Histories of Starfishes and Crustaceans. Part 1. Allusion has already been made in the preceding chapter to that most fundamental proposition of modern biology, which maintains that, quote, community in development reveals community of descent unquote. it has also been shown at length that in the eyes of modern naturalists the development of an animal or plant is regarded as affording a clue to the manner of its evolution or descent from pre-existing forms the formation of a living being today in other words repeats for us the formation of its race and species in time past so that once again to quote darwin's words we can understand how it is that, in the eyes of most naturalists, the structure of the embryo is even more important for classification than that of the adult, unquote. Or again, quote, embryology, or development, rises greatly in interest when we look at the embryo as a picture, more or less obscured, of the progenitor, either in its adult or larval state, of all the members of the same great class, unquote. Second to none in interest in the eyes of modern biologists are the phenomena presented to them in the formation of the animal or the plant frame. In former years, the mystery of development was great indeed. There could be offered in the past decade of biology no reason appealing sufficiently to the rational intellect as explanatory of the events in question why a frog in its development should appear first as a gill-breathing fish, later on as a tailed, newt-like creature, and ultimately as a tailless, lung-breathing amphibian. Nor could natural historians in the past venture to account in more lucid fashion for the curious changes which a butterfly or beetle undergoes in its progress from the days of its youth towards the adult form, and from the stage of the crawling grub through that of the quiescent chrysalis to the full-fledged imago with its wings. Kirby and Spence summed up and dismissed such matters in a manner, unfortunately for the free play of intellectual vigor, not quite extinct in these latter days, which said much, perhaps, for faith, but little or nothing for reason and science. These famous entomologists held that insects pass through a metamorphosis because, quote, such is the will of the Creator, unquote, and they supplement this confession of faith with an attempt at a scientific explanation by the further assertion that insects being voracious in their feeding habits especially in earlier life perform an important function in the economy of nature in that they remove from the earth's surface superabundant and decaying animal and vegetable matter a further reason for this providential arrangement was given in the fact that as quote, unusual powers of multiplication unquote, were indispensable for recruiting the ranks of the insect scavengers and as nutrition and reproduction are incompatible functions, the removal of decaying matter during the youthful stages of the insect's life was to be regarded as a convenient subdivision of its labors, seeing that its adult existence is spent in the work of reproducing its race. But it might easily be shown that, whilst a goodly number of larval insects do feed upon carrion, a large proportion of the class does not exhibit any such habit, and it might reasonably enough be maintained that the argument of Kirby and Spence is open to the serious objection that, in its character, it tends to illustrate the post-hoc ergo-propter-hoc fallacy. Decaying matter exists, 
Therefore, insects were designed to pass through a metamorphosis and were gifted with veracity of disposition that they might remove the said matter from the earth's surface, a proposition vitiated in its exactitude by the fact just mentioned that many insects do not eat such matter, and also by the further facts that many do not undergo a metamorphosis at all, that many voracious caterpillars, instead of eating decaying matter, destroy our trees and flowers. It might also be added that many of nature's scavengers of higher and lower rank than the insects do not pass through a series of changes in development, but grow, nourish themselves in the exercise of their sanitary work, and likewise at the same time and as adult forms reproduce their species and continue their race in time. Clearly, then, the explanation of Kirby and Spence affords no satisfaction to the contemplative mind in the natural anxiety and desire to discover the causes of things. At its very best, such explanation leaves the reason why untouched, and conversely it can well be understood how any other system of thought which presents a more satisfactory method of accounting for the facts in question should find ready acceptance as expanding and enlarging the thoughts of men. In the previous chapter we discussed the meaning of the remarkable likenesses which can be readily proved as matters of fact and observation to exist between the early stages in the development of very different animals. A sponge, a sea squirt, a lancelet, and even higher animals still appear in the first beginnings of their existence to pursue a remarkably similar course. Each form parts, company with its fellows at a given stage on the way of development, and thereafter passes by the special pathway of its race towards the adult and perfect stage. Von Baer's axiom that development proceeds from the general to the special thus declares a great truth of nature. Modern biology appears provided with a host of witnesses to the truth of that axiom, and supplies a reason for the likeness by assuming similarity of descent from lower life as the explanation of those common and general beginnings from which the special and varied forms of animals and plants are evolved every hour around us. The axiom that the development of the individual, ontogenesis, is the rapid shifting or panoramic recapitulation of the development of the species, phylogenesis, is now regarded in biology as the keynote of the whole study of animal and plant formation. If we find, for instance, that the frog in its development is firstly a fish, then a tailed amphibian or newt, and last of all a tailless, air-breathing frog, we see in such a panoramic succession of changes constituting the development of the individual the evolution and development of the frog race. We read such a history as showing us clearly enough that the frogs have been evolved from some ancient fish stock, that this fish ancestor became, through succeeding modifications, a tailed, newt-like amphibian, and finally the newt in turn became the higher frog. Most reasonable is the supposition and belief that, if the living hosts have descended from common ancestors, the appearance of ancestral features in their development is a most natural expectation and a highly natural law of life. That transmission from parent to offspring of hereditary features, so familiar to us in human existence, the reproduction of family features in the successive descendants of the family stock, is, in truth, but the repetition in higher life of the likenesses to its ancient ancestry we see in the developing frog. On such grounds we may attempt successfully to explain the mysteries of development, 
and on such a principle we may note in passing it is easy to see how important a guide to the classification and arrangement of living beings their development affords if those animals which are descended from a common ancestry resemble each other in their development such resemblances may be held to represent the truest of those blood relationships which it is the business and aim of classification to express the chronicle of the development of animal life is however not completed when the earliest changes seen in the formation of the animal frames have been noted long after the common and earliest stages described in the last chapter have been completed there may be produced before us marvelous resemblances and likenesses between animals which when adult would seem to possess no community either of origin or of other relationship it is to these later stages in the animal form that we now purpose to direct attention the history of those changes which more immediately precede the assumption of adult life affords us valuable evidence of the evolution of species as does the chronicle of the very beginnings of existence it is only needful to point out at the commencement of such a study that admittedly the panoramic views of evolution we are about to discuss frequently present breaks and gaps in their succession the expanding canvas of life here and there exhibits a blank surface due to the part erasure of the picture which we believe formerly existed thereon there exists a second principle in nature and evolution of equal importance to heredity or that in virtue of which the likeness of the parent or ancestors is transmitted to the offspring or descendants this second principle is that of modification by adaptation to surrounding or varying conditions the living being is a plastic unit capable of being affected and impressed in various and often undetermined fashions by the forces of the world in which it lives such external conditions heat and cold food habitat and a host of other circumstances influence its development in the present as unquestionably in the past they have modified the history of its race in truth the germ idea of evolution is that of progressive change and alteration induced by the great factors internal or innate hereditary and vital forces and the external or outside circumstances of life to the operation and influence then of surroundings acting variously upon different natures and organisms we rightly ascribe the deletion of stages we would naturally expect to meet with in that recapitulation of the animal evolution exhibited in its development as the geological record through its imperfections due to the metamorphism and destruction of fossil bearing rocks causes grievous gaps in the history of past life on the earth so the history and development of the life of today shows its blanks and imperfections likewise these blanks caused chiefly we believe by the varying outward conditions under which the development of the race was carried out thus if the main outlines of the development of the frog race be plainly delineated the pictures likewise may exhibit here but the dimmest possible contour and may there show a blank the original fish ancestor of the race must be sought for amid the fossils possibly it may never come to light at all the successive stages whereby the tailed newt became the frog are barely outlined in the animal world of today and are here and there wanting altogether but the finger posts exist nevertheless and they guide our mental way satisfactorily enough so long as we trust to their indications 
even though we have to wade through the high tides of difficulty and dimness of knowledge which obscure the intervening ground we may walk with confidence in that sober path which is founded upon the reason that is attainable as huxley pertinently remarks in a recent manual of zoological instruction quote, in practice however the reconstruction of the pedigree of a group from the developmental history of its existing members is fraught with difficulties it is highly probable that the series of developmental stages of the individual organism never presents more than an abbreviated and condensed summary of ancestral conditions while this summary is often strangely modified by variation and adaptation to conditions and it must be confessed that in most cases we can do little better than guess what is genuine recapitulation of ancestral forms and what is the effect of comparatively late adaptation the only perfectly safe foundation for the doctrine of evolution continues huxley lies in the historical or rather archaeological evidence that particular organisms have arisen by the gradual modification of their predecessors which is furnished by fossil remains that evidence is daily increasing in amount and in weight and it is to be hoped that the comparison of the actual pedigree of these organisms with the phenomena of their development may furnish some criterion by which the validity of phylogenetic conclusions or race development deduced from the facts of embryology alone may be satisfactorily tested unquote. a survey of some typical groups of animals in relation to their development will provide us with satisfactory means of judging how far and how plainly the history of the individual repeats that of its race turning firstly to some fields of lower life we may select the class echinodermata represented by the starfishes sea urchins sea lilies or crinoids and sea cucumbers as a starting point for our inquiries there is little need that a list of zoological characters should be enumerated by way of impressing the idea of the varied appearance of the animals just mentioned but it may be remarked that firstly they all exhibit a fundamental likeness in structure beneath diversity of form and secondly that such general or fundamental agreement is seen in the management of their internal organs digestive system heart nervous system etc and especially in what zoologists term their radial symmetry that is their generally rounded form arising from their bodily elements so to speak being molded around a central point the mouth however like these animals may be in general structure they at the same time present us with very diverse forms on the hypothesis of special creation nothing could appear more rational than the idea that dissimilarity of form was due to the separate circumstances of their creation but such an idea overlooks at the same time their general likeness in structure and it certainly takes no account and gives no explanation of the singular uniformity and resemblances presented by these animals in early life the general likeness in question in fact simply reiterates and strengthens the evidence and conclusions that the varied tribes of starfishes sea urchins crinoids and sea cucumbers have arisen from a common ancestry let the history of their development prove the truth and validity of this conclusion selecting a starfish as the most familiar form of the class we find its early development to exhibit those stages of egg segmentation common to the developing ovum of all animals and which have been already discussed but the special features of starfish development soon begin to show themselves in the production of a worm-like organism 
utterly different from the starfish form and which swims freely in the sea by means of the delicate cilia or vibratile processes with which the sides of its body are provided this larva possesses a digestive system a system of water tubes and other structures and it would thus seem as if from the egg of the starfish a wholly different progeny was destined to arise so unlike is the young organism to the parent that when first discovered it was described by sars in eighteen thirty five as a hitherto unknown form under the name of bipinaria in due time however a secondary formation begins to appear within this latter body and the curious spectacle is soon beheld of the form of the young starfish growing within and absorbing the materials of which the bipinaria body is composed so that when development is completed the bipinaria's substance has become appropriated by the new and secondary formation which latter duly appears as the true starfish destined after ordinary growth to assume the adult form the study of a sea urchin's early life history reveals a striking similarity to the development of a starfish the embryo sea urchin in escaping from the egg says agassiz quote, resembles a starfish embryo and it would greatly puzzle anyone to perceive any difference between them the formation of the stomach of the esophagus or gullet of the intestine and of the water tubes takes place in exactly the same manner as in the starfish the time only at which these different organs are differentiated not being the same unquote. but at a later stage the young sea urchin develops a different phase and form from those of the starfish it appears as a curious body shaped somewhat after the fashion of a painter's easel and formerly named pluteus under the idea that it represented an adult and distinct being within this pluteus a skeleton of limy rods is developed and a digestive system is also formed then succeed the final stages in development the body of the pluteus is absorbed by the future sea urchin which as in the starfish is formed within and from the substance of this larva with this difference that a portion of the pluteus is generally cast off as useless material whereas in the starfish the whole larva was utilized in the manufacture of the perfect form there exists a second group of starfishes including the brittle stars and sand stars and exhibiting certain differences in structure from the common starfishes of our sea beaches in their development these sand stars and their neighbors approach very nearly indeed to that of the sea urchins their larva is also a pluteus and possesses a limy skeleton and it is singular to find that forms so divergent in character as the sand starfishes and sea urchins should thus resemble each other in development the interesting group of the crinoids or sea lilies well known in a fossil state under the name of encrinites presents us with beings that may best be described as starfishes born on stalks there exists however a well-known free crinoid in the shape of the comatula antidon rosacea or the rosy feather star of our coasts this form appearing in its adult condition as a free unattached starfish but indubitably proving its crinoid nature in that it spends the early part of its existence in a stalked condition resembling the permanent state of its neighbor sea lilies now in the development of the crinoids we meet with an oval free-swimming larva within which a digestive system duly appears this organism in due course attaches itself by a stalk and the future crinoid is developed within this larva a new mouth and digestive apparatus are produced and the adult stalked form is assumed 
in the rosy feather star such development with its characteristic modifications is well seen here we first see the oval larva with its four bands of cilia and a tuft of these organs at the posterior extremity then traces of the future adult appear within this body as development proceeds the cup or body of the crinoid is formed the tentacles or arms bud forth and the young feather star already stalked appears in the likeness of a true crinoid here development might be thought to have well nigh attained its limit so thought the discoverer of this little stalked form when it was announced that in the cove of cork a rara avis in the shape of a british stalked crinoid duly named pentacrinus europius had been found but years afterwards the little pentacrinus was seen to leave its stalk and to appear before the eyes of zoologists in the guise of an old familiar friend the rosy feather star of the coast thus we discover firstly that crinoids resemble their neighbors the sea urchins and starfishes in the essential details of their development and we discover secondly in the case of the rosy feather star a further development of the crinoid race in that this latter organism has advanced to a free-living stage also noteworthy is the fact that when existing in its rooted and stalked stage the rosy feather star closely resembles the ordinary fixed crinoids and perhaps bears a still closer likeness to certain fossil members of the group the last class of echinoderms demanding attention is that of the holothurians or sea cucumbers found around our own coasts but developed typically as the trepangs and beche de mer of tropic seas and in marketable form as the delicacies of the chinese a sea cucumber presents us with an elongated body bearing a tuft of feathery tentacles at the mouth extremity and moving by aid of tubular feet similar to those of the starfishes and their neighbors here development resembles that of the starfishes and begins with the production of an oval ciliated body which soon acquires a digestive system the young sea cucumber in the guise of what is called its auricularia stage presents a cylindrical figure with four or five bands of cilia and bears ear-like processes hence its name before this larvae is fully formed the future sea cucumber commences its existence as a growth existing near the larval stomach the tentacles of the young holothuria soon appear the ear-like projections are absorbed the auricularia assumes a cylindrical form and becoming the pupa bears a striking resemblance to a worm when the process of absorption proceeds to a further stage the auricularia wholly disappears and as the new body which has been developed at its expense elongates the young sea cucumber form is duly evolved end of section twenty six chapter ten the evidence from development continued two the life histories of starfishes and crustaceans part one